Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Quote, if you meet the Buddha on the road to enlightenment, kill him. Unquote. So said Lin Ji, a teacher active in China in the 9th century AD. Despite the somewhat contrary attitude expressed in this statement, Lin Ji was himself a Buddhist, an exponent of a branch of the religion widely known in the West as Zen. Zen is a Japanese translation of Chan, the Chinese word for meditation. It developed in China in the 6th century AD, coming from 6th century BC, India. It emphasises a a monastic way of life, the practice of meditation, and the use of paradoxical riddles to help followers sidestep rational thought and achieve a state of sudden enlightenment. It came to Japan in the Middle Ages, and its strong impact eventually spilled into the West, especially in America in the 20th century. The religion developed under particular historical circumstances, and it's played a significant role in East Asian cultures and beyond. With me to discuss Zen are Tim Barrett, Emeritus Professor in the Department of the Study of Religions at SOAS, University of London, Lucia Dolce, Numata Reader in Japanese Buddhism, also at SOAS, University of London, and Eric Green, Lecturer in East Asian Religions at the University of Bristol. Tim Barrett, Zen emerged in China in the 6th century AD. Can you tell us how Buddhism came to China and how it had existed up until that point? Yes, we don't know exactly how Buddhism came to China, but certainly by the middle of the uh, 2nd century AD, uh, a lot of Buddhist scriptures were already being translated. Uh, And uh, over the course of the next few centuries, uh, more and more of these uh, Buddhist sources were translated. The result was then that uh, by the... um, uh, Sixth century, Buddhism was quite well established in certain ways. Uh, they had uh, a vast amount of data from India. They had also established monasteries, which were a novelty in Chinese society and very successful um, in um, uh, certainly economically successful in in that uh, the faithful would donate money to them. Um, But this, of course, in itself generated problems, both these things. Um, First of all, uh, to study these uh, translated scriptures and other documents uh, took a vast amount of time and effort uh, intellectually, that it it, it tended to slant uh, the practice of Buddhism towards what we might call the academic and secondly, the, the monasteries being very rich um, tended to isolate them from the rest of uh, Chinese society and also make them vulnerable. There were persecutions. How, far, <clears throat> how, how aware were they of the origins of Buddhism in India in the 5th or 6th century BC? Well, certainly uh, they knew about the life of the Buddha. They had some notion um, by that point of... Uh, Uh, a Buddhist history and how uh, Buddhism had reached them. Um, The the problem was, however, uh, the vulnerability of Buddhism and also the sense that the Buddha had lived a long time ago in another country and as he lived long ago and far away and all things must pass, the fate of Buddhism did not look good. Things could only get worse. So Chan emerged as a particular type of Buddhism about this time in China. Can you tell us briefly what Chan was? Uh, 
Yes. Uh, Chan emerges uh, in the person of an individual called Bodhidharma, who was a meditation teacher. We know he was uh, uh, a real historical uh, figure because he's mentioned incidentally by uh, uh, someone in, in a secular document, more or less, of about uh, 526. Um, and uh, he is looked back on as having brought to China from India what one might call, um, for lack of a better word, the essence of Buddhism. Um, this He was a meditation teacher, and of course meditation is something that you can't learn from books. Uh, and so if you have a meditation teacher who traces their um, tradition back to the Buddha, it means that there must have been a sequence of such teachers going back all that way. And... Furthermore, um, could it be perhaps in this rather gloomy situation that uh, to uh, learn with a meditation teacher gave you the key access to the essence of Buddhism? And that is what uh, Zen was thought of as being. Harry Green, one of the ideas associated with Chan is the doctrine of sudden enlightenment. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps the easiest way to say it would be that sudden enlightenment is a, an approach to the uh, Buddhist path to liberation, the uh, sequence of practices that uh, Buddhist, Buddhist what? I didn't path to liberation, path to liberation right. things one has to do to achieve well, uh, what we sometimes call enlightenment, but is more accurately thought of as liberation or awakening. Uh, it's an approach to that which uh, assumes that in some profound way uh, this uh, achievement is already innate within people, within those who are seeking it, and that therefore uh, to conceive of this path and to practice it in a way, uh, to conceive of it as a sort of gradual transformation from one state to another or a gradual uh, path of progress from one place to another, that this is somehow fundamentally misguided, uh, and that because the state of liberation is already innate within people, uh, uh, to achieve it is more like a sudden realization that one already has this thing, and therefore it must be uh, sudden in that sense. I should just also say, if, if I can, that this is a sort of description of the idea of sudden enlightenment. Within the context of the rise of Zen, it also has a certain um, polemical value as a slogan. So when Zen speaks of sudden enlightenment, they're not just saying, well, this is how we approach liberation, but that other groups of Buddhists approach it in a gradual fashion, and that's not as good. So it, ha it has both a sort of descriptive value, but then also this kind of um, ideological value, which is extremely important within the Zen tradition. And it's connected with the idea among a certain sect of Buddhism, Zen, that, that um, this cannot be put into words. Yes, and this is connected... The doctrine can't be put into words. Right, and that would uh, be connected to this idea that uh, precisely because uh, the state of liberation is something that is already inherent in you, any attempt to explicate how one arrives at it uh, is already a fundamentally misguided notion. So any uh, spoken or really just consciously articulated uh, sequence of steps, uh, sequence of practices that one must do, this is already the wrong thing. In fact, not just the wrong thing, but it's positively a, um, an obstacle. And so that the path to liberation now becomes conceived of not as learning to do something, but in somehow refraining from trying to do anything. So you sit, you wait for that to happen, which will happen if you wait for it to happen. Yeah, it, there's, I think, a valid perspective from which it doesn't quite work in the end as a totally unified system in that if you tell people, someone comes to you and says, well, how do I reach enlightenment? And you say, don't try to reach enlightenment. Um, you know, you could say, well, that doesn't really work. I mean, you're not going to sell a lot of... 
you know, Buddhism, if that's the only thing you have to say. So there, there's, there's a context, an institutional religious context within which this teaching was promulgated. And you have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, it doesn't actually make any sense at the end of the day. I mean, that's one. This is a small digression. I wanted it to be a small digression, but I'm sure you've thought this through. I was listening to Chomsky the other night, and he was saying, talking about thought preceding language uh, and a conceptual that Homo sapiens had had a conceptual mind before he discovered or it, or it came about that there was language. It could just be that this is reaching back to that, isn't it? Um, it could be, and I think that's uh, that sounds quite in line with the way that the uh, this Zen emphasis on the non-linguistic nature of truth or whatever. In the modern world, people do often, I think, interpret it quite in line with what you're saying. On the other hand, there is a more specifically Buddhist intellectual context about the nature of enlightenment being inherent, about the non-duality of enlightenment, it not being a conceptual thing. And so whether they're talking about the same thing or not, I don't know. But from my perspective anyway, to just gloss over the specific intellectual Buddhist context and say, oh, this is just what Chomsky is talking about, that would be at least an incomplete uh, conclusion. But you say it's incomplete anyway. <laughs> Did you? I mean, what I'm you, just quoting what you said about three or well, four minutes you know, ago. Th- th- my- my perspective, of course, is at least for the moment, is the external one of an academic trying to describe uh, the religion of Zen in a historical intellectual uh, context. If I were preaching Zen to you, I would uh, take a rather different uh, approach. <laughs> well, we'll leave that for another time, if you don't mind. Lucia Dolce, um, can you tell us how and when Chan moved over to Japan? Yes. Um, forms of Zen were already known in Japan uh, as part of the practices of uh, one of the largest schools of Buddhism uh, called Tendai. And uh, um, by the the end of the 12th century, some Tendai monks had tried to establish uh, the practice of Zen as an independent practice. But traditionally, the introduction of Chan to Japan is uh, associated with the activities of two Tendai monks uh, who went to China and learned the Song Dynasty style of Zen uh, with lots of focus on monastic discipline. And uh, these two uh, figures, called the Eisai and Dogen, are considered to be the founders of the two main lineages of um, of Zen in Japan, the Rinzai and uh, Soto Zen. What what period in history are we talking about? We're talking about, about uh, the end of the 12th century and the beginning of the 13th century. Was there any significant, is there, what's significant about that date, apart from like they arrived there? Was there some movement? Was there some, well, obviously there's movement. What caused it, do you think? Well, that's a moment in which uh, several forms of, uh, um, of Buddhist practice emerge as independent practices. Um, the context, the religious uh, um, context, is that of uh, um, a mainstream form of Buddhism based on tantric um, Buddhism, of esoteric Buddhism, that is what is called in Japan, uh, within schools such as the Tendai school that embraces different practices. And what we find around this period is that uh, uh, movements uh, um, focus on one specific practice and embrace that as uh, the best way to uh, achieve enlightenment or liberation to um, progress into the path towards liberation. So what was the particular practice that the Japanese Zen picked on and how did it differ from the Chinese Chan? Um, Well, that's, uh, again, that's the development of Zen uh, took different forms uh, according to lineage. Um, uh, 
in the case of uh, uh, one, maybe what we can say one specificity um, with, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the Soto school is the emphasis on sitting meditation, zazen, that's what it's called. Um, zazen was already a practice within the Tendai forms of meditation, one of the four types. Tendai being one of the, Jap- the one Chinese of, forms. Is, yes. uh, Tendai is a, a Sino-Japanese school of Buddhism that embraces different uh, uh, practices. And one of those there were four different types of meditation and one of those was constant sitting. And so Zazen is uh, just sitting, uh, meditate through sitting. And maybe we can say that perhaps um, um, in the interpretation of the founder of Soto Zen, Dogen, uh, the meaning of Zazen became um, sort of absolute. You just sit and uh, uh, that practice uh, equals the achievement of enlightenment. Basically, the practice equals the goal of Buddhist uh, um, um, endeavor. So we're getting two streams here We get in, in Japanese Zen. Would you like to take that on and develop that a bit, Tim Barrett? Uh, yes. Well, in a sense, the two streams are already there in, in China. Um, uh, as Lucia said, the, the, the differences between those who believe that in meditation, in sitting in meditation, you're going to uh, achieve all there is to be achieved. And the others, uh, um, you mentioned in your introduction, Linji and uh, the Japanese uh, would say Rinzai, uh, in this tradition, um, there is much more emphasis on the master using various uh, techniques uh, to try and uh, prompt, if that's perhaps the fair word, prompt the uh, um, enlightenment in, in, in the student. And certainly um, there's much more of an, uh, of an interaction between master and student in the process of, of seeking enlightenment. Uh, Dogen, the founder of the Soto tradition, would say, um, you know, uh, just sit, you know, none of this. Uh, and indeed, uh, uh, one can see that he's picking up on controversies that were already uh, quite um, vigorous in China between uh, advocates of uh, one approach and the other approach. But there's just sit, and then there's these passages that are coming from the ancient masters of Zen. Yes. Is it koan? Is the, koan is the word, Verses yes. uh, and, and so on. So they, yes. So... Are these in parallel? Are these are they bleeding into each other? Are, are they distinctive groups? Are they fighting but, each other? I think that that's that's uh, an interesting question, and I think that the uh, to differentiate, say, a Rinzai from Soto, and, and suggest that these are entirely different groups uh, would be misleading, because I think both groups accept the importance of meditation. Both groups uh, see some role, at least, for for the koan, the, the, these uh, uh, challenges to the intellect. Uh, in uh, as having a function in in Zen training, can you take can you tell us more about the koan, Eric Green? Um, sure. Uh, maybe, have you got one or two examples of your lip tips? Well, the 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 quote you gave in the introduction: "If you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha." This is, uh, uh, I think, it must be an actual koan uh, somewhere. But uh, in terms of what they are, uh, as uh, literary documents, because this is what they actually are: is they're uh, basically excerpts from uh, what are called collected sayings of the past Zen masters. So one of oh, the... What, past masters. Past yeah. masters of yeah. the Zen tradition. So one of the distinctive uh, doctrinal emphases of 
uh, Zen is this idea that the scriptural teachings are somehow uh, not supreme. They're not really what people need to study. Uh, you need to just realize your innate uh, Buddha nature. But in practice, what ends up happening within the Zen tradition is that in place of the traditional scriptures from Indian Buddhism, what come to be valued almost as scriptures in their own accord are the uh, recorded sermons or sayings of the Zen masters themselves. Zen ma- being recipients of this lineage of enlightenment, Zen masters themselves are treated like Buddhas, and therefore their words have that same value. So these what do we know about these Zen masters, Eric? Uh, some of them we know a lot about. Um, some of them over which period of time? And there are over a few centuries. These great masters, are they? Yes, the ones whose words become kind of collected into these documents, which then are treated basically like the scriptures of the Zen school. These uh, figures lived roughly between the early eighth uh, century and then all the way into the thirteenth or fourteenth or later century. That's the sort of period when. Uh, uh, the collection of these documents is most uh, intense. Koans are technically uh, sort of small excerpts from these sayings, little um, snippets uh, that a Zen master spoke. And because the Zen master is basically the Buddha or has the same enlightenment as the Buddha, his words have the same power to enlighten people who hear them as the words of the Buddha do. So the koans then become collections of particularly potent, so it's thought, excerpts from these words, which are then collected into volumes with lots of different sayings from different, different Zen masters over hundreds of years and studied by uh, followers of Zen, kind of like scriptures. There's a certain irony here. Uh, People have commented that the Zen school begins by saying that Zen transmits a teaching outside of words, um, and then the literary output of the Zen school in China is actually greater than any other school of Buddhism, precisely in these collections of the sayings of the Zen masters. Lucia Dolce, can we go back to something you mentioned in... uh uh, your first contribution, uh, back to Zazen, Soto, Soto, Zazen. And can you just point out the differences? We, say similarities if you want, but the differences for, so the listener can understand the differences from, from what Eric's been saying. Uh, with the koan? Yeah. The differences from the koan, the differences of Zazen, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zazen is, uh, so koan and Zazen, as, as uh, both Tim and Eric have said, have been identified as the two main practices I'm going of to Zen. Go into, can we go into Zazen a bit now? That's sitting around, isn't but, it? Yes, that's uh, just sitting, just sitting meditation, as I, as I mentioned before, is one one type of meditation. And, uh, but what do you do when you're told to meditate? I mean, you, I, it's a bit difficult in this area, isn't it? Because you're told to meditate but not to meditate. If you med- So it's, it gets a bit complicated to be simple, doesn't it? Yes, So perhaps. what is it? What I think um, is interesting in the, in the way in which this type of meditation is articulated by the early uh, Japanese thinkers uh, is that uh, what is important is the posture of the body. And uh, the correct uh, uh, sort of uh, um, sitting. So by uh, sitting uh, leg crossed, which is the ideal shape of uh, of the Buddha, of the the form that the Buddha takes, also in the iconography, you have a um, a model to imitate. By just sitting in the correct posture, uh, the practitioner becomes the Buddha by doing nothing else but that. So you don't, the, the focus is not so much on the mental process of meditating that is often thought to be fundamental in, in Western perceptions, but is in the uh, more ritualized um, way of sitting, 
And breathing, I presume. Breathing exercises and are there. breathing to a certain extent. Well, you've mm. got to be breathed, but I mean, there's special ways to breathe. But uh, that's not, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that in, uh, in yeah. Zen is uh, the I'm, most, I'm sorry uh, to be so pedantically empirical and, Scot- and English and all the rest of it, but you're sitting meditating, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and I'm using that word deliberately. See, it isn't a, I'm not diminishing the enterprise because one of the great precepts is just sit. That is a quote, isn't yes, it? Yes, it just is. Sit. So you're just sitting, you're in the right posture, you're breathing correctly, then what? And uh, just that equals uh, to the achievement of enlightenment, of liberation, at least in the words of, uh, of uh, uh, well, Dogen, for instance. Um, in practice, meditation was just one of the activities that uh, uh, would be um, performed in a Zen monastery. Um, there were uh, meditation sessions that were um, integral part of the daily life, but uh, meditation was not uh, the exclusive activity of uh, uh, of the monks, of Zen monks. Uh, there was as much time spent in uh, reading sutras and, uh, and um, uh, sort of praying, if we want to say so. It's curious, isn't it, Tim Barrett, that I'm struggling, obviously, and I, um, the, to uh, articulate what the people involved are deliberately not articulating. Um, so don't you find that when, you, when you're studying this, that people are saying, no, we're just sitting, and now you find out about it for yourself? Yes, uh, but, but uh, I can reassure you that, as uh, one Zen master said, it's great doubt that leads to great enlightenment. I don't think it's a process we can get through in the next few minutes, but uh, um, I think that... Wait, uh, hold on, just a second. Why does that, Nobody's mentioned doubt until now. What's the doubt? The doubt is to what am I doing, uh, trying to find enlightenment, what is enlightenment... Um, Am I getting nowhere studying the words of the master? Am I getting nowhere by just sitting? Um, I think. Um, am I getting nowhere living in a monastery? Um, is this what they mean when they talk about being in Buddha mind? These, these okay. doubts. Uh, uh, yes and no, because uh, Buddha mind, uh, which is the state of mind of a Buddha, uh, is. Uh, has some masters in uh, going back as early as the ninth century, at least, if not the eighth, uh, insist. It's just like everyday mind, uh, which means that uh, enlightenment is not some experience that is above and beyond ordinary human life. Um, as I said, the problem had been with Buddhism in China that it was not integrated into society particularly well. But uh, the, the Zen masters insist that it is something that it can be part of an ordinary life. Indeed, not simply for monks, but, but for lay people as well. Um, so enlightenment if, doesn't have to be, oh, I see the world as it really is. Enlightenment can be cleaning your porridge bowl. Uh, it it could thing, be, but, uh, but you would be cleaning it in an enlightened way. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, you remember George Herbert, a servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. It's a different clause, but the same sentiment in, in a sense. Um, so uh, daily life, including, um, and I think this was uh, key in, in China, including manual labour, uh, could uh, be also an enlightened life. Remember that the accusation was that the monks were parasites. Uh, so to say that, uh, no, we're not parasites, we, our enlightenment is, is, is part of, uh, uh, just part of normal life. We're not separate from society. Um, 
that was, I think, important. Why I'm digging away at this, Eric Green, and I wanted to help us here, is that it became so powerful, so important in Japan, and affected so many things, Zen, and then it spilled over into the West, that, that getting to the core of it is, we can spend another minute or two on that, and the core of it seems to be meditation. Uh, and I'm clearly not having... Div- it's Given that meditation, uh, they're saying we are thinking, or are we thinking... Um, but articulation is for others. Or it's what's your handle on it? Um, well, I, I don't know that I can give you a, a complete answer, but let me just say that one thing that for me makes sense of it all, right, uh, is that if one tries to talk about the sort of the Zen approach, particularly this approach in which they're reluctant to explain what the approach is, just sit, you know, just by sitting you are the Buddha. If considered in the abstract, these statements, I think, often don't seem to make much sense. But when we, again, remember that these are statements which are being articulated in a particular context. So when the Zen master says, don't try to attain enlightenment, right, he's presuming that he is speaking to someone who is already committed to attaining enlightenment. Right? In a context of people who have devoted their entire lives to it, in an institution that has set up all of these rituals and practices and things precisely for this purpose. So there's a, there's a sort of disconnect between what Zen masters say and what from the outside they look like they're doing. And the point of it all, if you want to put, put it that way, in some ways lies precisely in that contrast. Don't try to attain enlightenment is a, is a, a way to articulate the attitude you should have while trying to attain enlightenment. Now, the Zen masters wouldn't say that because they are, they're only going to say the part of it of don't trying to attain enlightenment. But when they're saying this, they're surrounded by people who are in an institution devoted to the attainment of enlightenment. So when you put those two together, it makes a bit more sense. If you try to take out just what the Zen masters say and say, well, how does, how does it make sense to say that you shouldn't try to attain it? Then, then it gets a bit mysterious. Is enlightenment anything like the notion of Greek idea of living well or the general idea of happiness. Are there any connections we can make with more familiar forms? Answer comes there none. Well, my, my, I don't, I don't want to step in here first. My, my only hesitancy would be that, and while I think that, uh, for example, some of the things that uh, Tim just said about you know, the notion that enlightenment uh, should be something that can manifest in everyday life and all of these things, uh, we do have to be very careful, and we don't always know the difference between when such things are said as a kind of ideology versus when they reflect what people have actually done. So in the case of Zen, for example, yes, you have many statements to the effect that enlightenment should is be something that can appear in every aspect of your life. But did the Zen monks leave their monasteries and stop performing their elaborate rituals and stop devoting 40 years of their life to doing these things? No, they kept doing that. So, you know, I'm not sh- I would be personally reluctant to say that the, the Zen notion can be sort of abstracted from all that because, again, I think it takes place in that context. Although I think this is the kind of thing where people start having debates. Can I come to Lucia then to, to develop that? You, you mentioned the idea of the Zen monasteries, and in Japan, Zen became a force. Uh, and big force, monasteries, monasteries were later attacked, and so on. So there we are. Uh, what, what were the monasteries giving to Zen? Why did they need monasteries? Uh, well, first of all, because Zen, like all other forms of Buddhism, was a monastic tradition, at least uh, in, when it started. But maybe if we look at the development of Zen in Japan, we can uh, we can see that there is uh, a um, well, the establishment of uh, new monasteries, but uh, on the uh, model, the structural model of a pre-existent Buddhism. So uh, Zen sort of allies to uh, the uh, government and 
newly emerging classes. So we have two different types of monasteries, some which are um, that cat- are sponsored and cater to the uh, military government, the aristocracy, and receive donation from uh, these classes for the performance of rituals that are rituals of prote- protection, protection of the country, protection uh, of individuals, and, uh, and funerary rites. And Which are very important. They are very, very important. They are perhaps, besides uh, what uh, what the rhetoric of Zen says, the most important contribution of Zen to Japanese society. Um, the funer- the f- carrying out of the funerary rites, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can say that uh, uh, Zen developed a type of funerary rites for everyone in Japan that uh, are uh, still existent, so the long-lasting influence. Um, with a, yeah, because Zen, uh, the Zen uh, monasteries uh, already had uh, funerary rites for the abbot and for uh, um, general mo- common monks, and that could be applied to lay people, but uh, in a very specific Zen fashion by uh, ordained the dead by the posthumous ordination of a dead person. So when you died, you got a new name. You got a. Uh, exactly. And then you sort of entered into, you became a monk. Exactly. Dead, you are dead, entered into yeah. the community, the so monastic you could have community. The rights, yeah. Exactly because the funerals were meant for monks, so they were meant for an ordained person. And uh, um, by moving the ritual um, um, into the, the sort of society and applying it to lay people, um, the, the, the Zen monks reproduced the model of ordination. They shaved the head of a, a dead person and uh, they gave uh, um, a posthumous name, which is called the precept name, so the name that a monk would take uh, during ordination. And uh, uh, they would even include this uh, uh, name in a lineage chart uh, that linked the dead person to the patriarchs, eventually to all the previous monks. And uh, the, um, um, the, the, the posthumous name is still one of the most important practices of funerary rites today in Japan. Tim Barrett, Zen's associated with a lot of the arts and wider culture, particularly poetry. What's the connection there? Well, I think there's a connection, especially with poetry, because Zen is very interested in language and uh, poets are very interested in Buddhism in general. It brought into China um, a a lot of um, ideas about mental life um, and uh, poets are interested in things like... um, uh, visualizing a scene or, or, or creativity, all these things that go on in the mind. Uh, and we find uh, an overlap between um, the way poets describe poetry and uh, certainly Buddhist terminology in general. Now, um, Zen monks too, because uh, poetry in any culture tends to be a very compressed form of language. So when they tried to express uh, some of these ineffable truths, and poetry was uh, a frequent medium for for at least uh, uh, alluding to uh, the ineffable truth. And, and for example, uh, a Zen master would uh, encapsulate his or her enlightenment in a verse and perhaps... Um, at the end of their career, as they knew death was approaching, they would uh, leave a final verse to their students. However, uh, when it comes to uh, the introduction of Zen culture to Japan, I think it's important to see that one of the things that that Eric has mentioned, that a Zen master is as good as a Buddha, had actually been quite important in giving 
uh, East Asia, China in the first instance, a sense that they didn't need India. And there was a big shift in Chinese culture about a millennium ago towards a, a more independent culture that didn't look outside China. What this meant was that uh, you had created a new Buddhist culture that was distinctively Chinese, that used Chinese poetry, uh, also painting and calligraphy. And it was this package that was uh, exported to Japan, um, and that was quite novel. I'm going to stay with Japan now, I agree. Can you tell us um, what, how Zen began to play, and then as the Middle Ages rolled through, <coughs> excuse me, in society and institutions, particularly, say, the army, the samurai in Zen, for instance, which is what a lot of people know about. I should turn this question over to the chi, I suppose. But uh, yeah, well, the, she can come in, right? Just, <laughs> this is the way it goes: ping, pong, pong, and it's I your see, turn now. Here, 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 I thought that there was, there was some other uh, secret order. The uh, uh, the 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 connection. I mean, as Luce was saying a second ago, the uh, one of the things that accounts for Zen success in Japan is the strong connections established between the government and the Japanese, uh, the Zen institutions. They, why did they? Why were they attracted to each other, Zen and the government? Well, Buddhism is power. I mean, in addition to being enlightenment and all these other things, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that Buddhism promises is worldly power. If you perform good Buddhist deeds, if you patronize enlightened Buddhist masters, uh, you get a return uh, in this life, which can help you do all sorts of things. So this is this is not unique to Japan by any means, and this goes back to the beginnings of Buddhism in India, really. But, but also in Japan, the Buddhism had really established itself as a state religion that legitimized the government. And uh, the Zen schools, as the sort of newly arrived schools, could legitimize the emerging um, uh, ruling elites, which are the warrior elites. So the, the reason is not really in the kind of stern discipline that monastics, uh, Zen monasticism was proposing, but was in the fact that uh, um, Zen monks coming from China were bringing Chinese civilization and were bringing they were kind of a, um, a new players in the um, uh, sort of acculturation of the emerging military classes. Well, let's stick to this, to Japan. We know it's all come from China. We've got that. That's been drilled into us. Now, in, in Japan, for instance, when we re see films about the samurai, <coughs> several times we're looking at a man using Zen to be the perfect archer. Now, can you give uh, us the connection there? Because uh, yes, archery and Zen yes, has gone through it, hasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Well, it would be well, useful to have I'm, that. And if you... I'm afraid <laughs> that... Uh, 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 that uh, was not a connection that was made historically. Um, martial arts had their own uh, their own kind of development, and in fact, uh, you can say that they were as much linked to Zen as to Tantric Buddhism. Mm -hmm. All the swords that, uh, for instance, are used by uh, you know, swordsmen uh, are uh, not all, but many of them are inscribed with esoteric deities, with Tantric deities, rather than with Zen sayings. But the connection between uh, uh, Zen and martial arts is, I think, a, a much more modern connection that uh, uh, started really at the end of the 19th century um, and was part of uh, a broader movement of modernizing Zen and associating it to all sorts of uh, um, 
well, art and non-religious elements, spiritual elements. And it's connected to the emphasis on Bushido as uh, one of the uh, uh, ident- uh, kind of uh, characteristic that identifies Japan. Mm. So we are not talking really of mm. medieval positions here, but mm. uh, of very... Um, complex ideological reasons uh, at the end of the 19th century with the formation of the Japanese state. Well, I agree. How did, did it find its way into Japanese society, in the, say from the 13th to the 16th, 17th century? Was it, we, we, with the samurai, the, the archery thing doesn't turn up until much later. So what does turn up sooner? Yeah, uh, much later. The famous Zen, if I just get this in, since it's a good fact for everyone to know, the Zen in the Art of Archery mm-hmm. book, which is out there, this German philosopher studied with a archery master in Japan. That archery master actually was on record in Japanese expressing his distaste for Zen, how he hated it. So a lot of the, yes. <laughs> a lot of the, uh, the connection between some of these things is not, not just late 19th century, as Lucia said, but even later and uh, particularly in the interaction between uh, Western thinkers who were sort of trying to figure out this whole Japanese thing and we're putting pieces together which on the Japanese side didn't necessarily go together. So we talked about what really happened, which you're not getting much out of that really but what people decided happened a few hundred years later and imposed on what had happened or what they thought had happened. It gets very I, we know exactly where we are. In this yeah. thing. Okay, let's, let's turn um, let's turn to D.T. Suzuki and his particular interpretation of Zen and why it's significant. He's, he's part people of are pointing world. at you uh, Tim, so there is. you go. Um, well, uh, Lucia and Eric have led into this very well. He's part of this whole um, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, reconsideration of the Zen tradition and the manufacture of, of bits of it that weren't there before. Um, Suzuki um, was certainly taught by some someone who, who was a leader in the movement to take Zen out to the world as a as representative of the essence of Japanese culture. Um, which indeed, because uh, they had received a cultural package from from China of arts and so forth, that was good. Um, furthermore, this very essence thing, the, the, it's a word I've mentioned before and felt very bad about, uh, because uh, uh, it presupposes there is a thing there that you're looking for, which might be misleading. But uh, even so, um, it was easy to sell to Westerners, especially because Suzuki, having spent 10 years in America, was very aware of what the current preoccupations were of people like William James talking about religious experience. So he talked up, uh, and it was uh, not entirely uh, a false representation of the tradition, he talked up immediacy, you know, how Zen took you straight into an experience of enlightenment. Tim, um, sorry, um, Eric, we're talking about not sort of enlightenment. We're talking about the Zen playing a part in the nationalist ideology that prevailed in Japan before the Second World War. How did it get? How did it get aligned with that? Well, it wasn't just Zen. It was basically all uh, Japanese Buddhism. Yeah, we're when, talking about Zen at the moment. Well, but but in in a sense, to, if one talked about Zen by itself, one would then say, well, what was particular about Zen which made them do it? All the Japanese Buddhist institutions did. They did because the uh, the uh, the Meiji government, which had come to power, was basically interested in suppressing Buddhism and elevating Shinto as the kind of state religion. So all Japanese Buddhist groups, uh, in order to survive, in order to make themselves relevant, uh, came up with ways to uh, contribute to the national 
slash modernization, nationalization, and then eventually military effort of Japan. So I, I'm, I'm not sure there was anything distinctly Zen about that. That's just what was going on uh, in uh, Japanese Buddhism. On the other hand, it is also true, and this, uh, some books written about this, the particular language of Zen, in particular this reluctance to talk about um, prerequisites to enlightenment, such as moral prerequisites. This is not to say that Zen Buddhists traditionally have actually ignored moral prerequisites, but there's, a re- there's no place within official Zen ideology to really talk about how, say, uh, following moral precepts contributes to enlightenment. Uh, that has perhaps at times made it easy to align certain Zen ways of speaking with less savory uh, elements of history. Again, this is not to say that historically there's any uh, connection between that, but on an ideological and rhetorical level, um, it's possible that that has, that has helped, or can, helped is not the right word. But. Can you tell us how it moved, when it began to move emphatically to America, didn't it? We've had Suzuki, and can you just briskly tell us where it hit America? Sorry, we're running out of time. Sorry about this briskly, but moved. we spent an awful lot of time in China. We did <laughs> India, China, and Japan. It's not bad, and we've got to get to America before we end. Right. Uh, well, I think um, the uh, uh, Waditi Suzuki uh, had a role. He arrived in uh, America as the translator of uh, a Zen monk, uh, who, the, the monk that Tim was, called, uh, was talking about, so who wanted to liberalize Zen. And uh, um, so that was 1893, the uh, Chicago Parliament of Religion, the first time that uh, the West heard a Zen monk speaking about Zen. Um, and then I think a second wave um, of, of uh, interest in Zen is uh, in the uh, uh, what the Beat Generation, and the post-war Beat Generation, and uh, the identification of Zen as a spiritual experience that uh, is uh, uh, sort of um, is religious but not really religious, so using the words that D.T. Suzuki himself um, uh, used. So the association um, of uh, Zen with um, a certain uh, type of uh, um, of immediacy of uh, of experience, the arts again, um, and a certain um, antinomic uh, behavior as well. What about the, the the claiming of Zen by the Beats, by Kerouac and Ginsberg, and by Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and so on? Can you tell us about that? Um, uh, what, what about it? You mean? Yeah, I mean, do you think they've got well, they're using it for their own purposes, or? Well, sure, but everyone uses everything for their own purposes, right? It was definitely, right, well, it was definitely, it, it was definitely a case okay, where they okay. were they on the ball? Were they were they getting something that was seriously there from Tim's trek from yeah. India to China to Japan? I, I think they were getting something that was seriously there, but they were, of course, also extracting it from its uh, historical, institutional, religious context. So, But on, on the other hand, that's what Buddhists have always done. When the Chinese got Buddhism from India, they also extracted it from that, their context and made something new. So from that point of view, it's all well and good. But f- from a historical point of view, it's a bit uh, novel. Thank you very much, Eric Green, Lucia Dolce and Tim Barrett. Next week we'll be talking about behavioural ecology. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We, we, we didn't talk about lineage enough and the importance of no, that within... No, as... I, I, part of what's happening is that uh, stressing a connection back to the Buddha, um, that uh, uh, this legitimates the authority of the Zen master, you know. It's, it's in, a, in, a, in a society like China. They're not called patriarchs for nothing, as it were. Yeah. Um, that uh, this this is a way of stressing their authority, and more than even the sort of ideological or doctrinal or even practical elements, that's the one thread that holds it all together. What what links all the people we call Zen or Chan 
into one thing is precisely this strong identity identity with this lineage that the claim to be a representative of the tradition from Bodhidharma. Yeah. Um, yeah. To people who say, who could say, and even in modern China, for example, and we didn't talk about this, but Zen kind of as a lineage lives on in China. People today, Chinese Buddhist masters claim to be in the Zen Chuck lineage. themselves back to yeah, Buddha. Even yeah. though they don't say anything that resembles what we would call Zen anymore. Sort of ideologically and doctrinally, they've changed. Mm. But in terms of their lineal identity, they still hold to that. So that is, uh, we should have emphasized yeah. that. In, in a sense, also, we were seduced by the India-China-Japan thing, which mm. is it's a well, wonderful you narrative. Go, but, but, <laughs> it's entirely your fault. Indeed. But, but, but uh, we're missing out on the Vietnamese and the Koreans. But, uh, but of course, the Koreans would, would, uh, would insist that, that uh, their Zen is as good as anybody else's Zen. And in a sense, in terms of modern Zen or contemporary Zen, the Vietnamese and, and uh, Korean experience are extremely important. Yes. They've, they've, they've been some of the prime exporters of certain of Zen, Zen yes, traditions. Yes. For the most. It's true, so I think. The influence of but but yeah. in Vietnam, it's possible that you have a case that's more like contemporary or sort of more modern China in that it re- remains as a notion of lineage yes. extremely important, but it's not the kind of particular Zen discourse that we were discussing sudden. And I mean, those mm. things no longer... I, I, I don't know enough about the Vietnamese case. None of us do. To know. But I think that's also I'm just... As, didn't a, get to it, as another thing, we sort of missed the Zen, the, connect, the Zen meditation thing. We didn't quite unpack that enough in the sense that, you know, Zen as meditation is something that all East Asian Buddhists yes. are interested in. Yes. So the, the use of Zen to describe themselves is well, itself a kind of claim that we really have the what, essence of... What I say about that yeah. is that it's like Baptists. All Christians exactly. tend to... That's exactly what it's like. Um, ...tend to yeah. uh, accept the rite of baptism, but Baptists uh, are called that because it's... They give it a certain... They give it, they give it a certain... Well, just, like, yeah. just like all Christians yeah. are Catholic. Yeah. Oh, indeed. In their understanding, indeed. Right? Absolutely. And, and not to mention the Orthodox Christians who yes, are not who are the only Orthodox. Orthodox. Exactly. <laughs> yes. so, so Zen calling themselves Zen is a lot like those terms, actually. Yeah. That should be pointed out, too. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.